Johnny Erickson Tata. And uh, when Russ asked me to introduce her this morning, she's one of the hardest people to introduce. Because while God is using her in such a marvelous and spectacular way, not only in America, where she serves to motivate the churches of America to to notice people that have special needs and then to build and design and implement programs that that minister to those friends who, whom God has given special needs and sharing them with the rest of the church population as special opportunities. And not only that, but as she would be heard across the airwaves on something like, what, 250 stations daily, encouraging and strengthening millions of lives and through her books and music and painting and and in her international travels, which are becoming greater now, taking the message of Christ, the message of hope, to a lost and dying world, and many times behind the Iron Curtain and even perhaps behind the Bamboo Curtain. So extend, please, a warm, warm welcome to Mrs. Johnny Erickson Tata. Bob, for that introduction. I don't know what to say. <laughs> Quite glowing. Um, if I appear a little shaky, don't don't mind. It was a long drive for me out here this morning from Woodland Hills. My friend Suman from our office at Johnny and Friends drove with me, but still that meant I had to do all the driving. And if you guys get a chance, take a look at my van on your way back to school. It's that yellow big thing out there with no steering wheel. <laughs> I got my first driving ticket. Yes. Oh, that's, I think that's why I'm a little nervous driving even still. I don't know what in the world I was doing wrong. I was simply making your every average, day, every average ordinary, run-of-the-mill, right turn off of Topanga Canyon Boulevard on the Ventura. And the next thing I know in my rearview mirror was a motorcycle policeman with his little, little thing going around, his little blue lights. I got pulled over. I was so nervous. I, I started crying. I, has anybody here cried getting a chat? Am I the only one? Come on, be honest. It was awful. And what was so unnerving was that for the moment I forgot how to shift gears, turn off the van, and put down my window so the motorcycle policeman could tell me what in the world I had done wrong. Well, there he is standing outside my door, hands on hips, you know, boots, jodfers, the, 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 the glare glasses, the helmet, the whole... Very intimidating, and I babbling like an idiot trying to get down the window. I keep thinking what a bad name I'm giving all these other people with disabilities who are on the road. <laughs> and well, finally, when I got my window down, I told him that, um, that he would have to come into the van and reach for my pocketbook and, and zip it open and get my wallet and look for my license, and <laughs> I think that unnerved him. <laughs> I was so embarrassed. There he is rummaging through my, my sticky bottle of hairspray, my dirty Kleenex, my wallet, my makeup case, trying to find my license. Finally, he got it. I was so nervous. I got the ticket. So if I appear a little shaken this morning, please bear with me. But it's fun being with you guys this morning. I don't know what it is about talking to people who are in school, freshmen, sophomores, juniors, seniors, maybe maybe the reason it's special to me personally was because that's just around the age when I broke my neck. 
back in 1967. It was a different age then, though, time of campus riots and the Vietnam War and civil rights movement and political corruption and lots of attempts at reform going on. I'll never forget when I was um, in that hospital bed after having broken my neck that July in 67, turning on the TV and within the span of one year just seeing two assassinations right there on the screen. I was fresh out of high school myself and I had studied contemporary issues of the social sciences and uh, let's see, modern and contemporary history. I was a real history buff. And I had subscribed to US News and World Report and Time Magazine, but suddenly the people that I encountered in that hospital, those who were black, those who were poor, many who were disabled, some Hispanic, I don't know, being shoved out of your average middle class, ordinary white suburban arena into a world of people behind the issues. I mean, the issues were there in black and white on television, but suddenly I was meeting people with real names and real faces who had real opinions and interests and hopes and dreams, and they were the people behind all those pretty sad and upsetting issues that were going on. It was an eye-opener for me, I think, being faced with those heart-wrenching issues right across the TV screen. but. I guess I really wasn't concerned in being part of the solution to those people's problems. I guess I was more concerned with the problems that faced me. Admitted I was only 17 years old and I had broken my neck and was facing the prospect of sitting down for the rest of my life without use of my hands or use of my legs. My biggest question was just who is in control here? And I guess you can see how honest and probing the question really was. I mean, those were the sorts of questions I was drumming over in my mind, even as I was watching those campus riots on television and the assassinations and, and all the civil unrest. I was thinking, just who is in control? To make a long story short, I was not real hep on getting back into the Bible at that point. You see, I had become a Christian through young life when I was a sophomore in high school, and I had memorized all the phrases from God's Word, the verses, the spiritual truths. But I don't know. It seemed as though when my high school friends who were now off into college, some planning marry, marriage, others going on to jobs, it seemed as though when they shared God's Word with me, it, it, was, it, sounded, it sounded flat. I don't know. It, it seemed as though their heads were light years away from the sort of things I was faced with. But they won me over, and you know how they did it? They did it with their guitars and their pizzas and their bags of donuts and their 17 magazines and sitting on the edge of my hospital bed on Saturday afternoons watching NCAA football games and just loving me, you know, treating me like a real human being instead of somebody who was paralyzed. I mean, they recognized that I was still a person behind an awful issue with opinions and hopes and dreams and interests. And they loved me through that awful time of depression. And because I cracked under the pressure of their love and their prayers and the power of their consistent friendship, they won the right to be heard. They were... Um, they were like Christianity with its sleeves rolled up. So that when they opened the Bible, I, I listened. And I remember one of the first things that I read out of God's Word was the book of Job. I know it's kind of a heavy place to begin. But I thought that, my goodness, Job was going through virtually the same things I was faced with. 
he was going through suffering, he probably wondered just who was in control. Well, you know that story. I mean, you know, his property was ruined or stolen. His family was either killed off, and there he sits on a big pile of manure at the end of his, what appears to be the end of his life, and his wife is a nag, and his friends are critical, and he's got a lot of questions. And in a very real sense, he's, he's twisting God's arm for all the reasons why. But it occurred to me as I was reading through the book of Job that God never answered one of his questions. In fact, I thought it was very curious that God never brought the subject of Job's suffering up. It was, or excuse me, Satan never brought up the subject of Job's suffering. It was God. I mean, all this suffering, all this heartache seemed to be initiated by God and his question to the devil, have, have thou considered my servant Job? And I wondered if in a strange way God had not brought up the subject of my own suffering. Well, as I said, I read through that book, noticing that not in one place did God answer Job's questions, except in the last five chapters, God finally walks on stage to answer some of the challenges. But curiously enough, he never tackles the questions. He only says, stand up, Job, because I've got a few questions for you. And you can read it for yourself. In those chapters remaining, the Lord starts talking about his glory and his greatness the Lord starts talking about how he dreamed up time and space, how he leads history by the hand, how he sets the sun and the stars spinning in motion, how he dreamed up you and me and, and ladled out the seas and carved out the rivers and puckered up the mountain ranges and how he did all these wonderful, glorious things by his, by his own hand. And I have to admit, when I read all that stuff, at first I thought, come on, God, you're skirting the issue here. That's not still not answering any of Job's questions. But it occurred to me after a little bit of meditation that God wanted Job to see, look, Job, if you can't even understand the basic ins and outs of nature, if you can't even understand where caribou go to give birth to their young, then how are you ever going to understand the way in which I deal with you on the spiritual dimension? I guess in, in a strange way, God was saying, there is no courtroom in the sky, Job. And he was saying to me, Johnny, I'll be answerable to no one. Because you see, I didn't invent fairness. I am fairness. I just didn't invent what is good or kind or moral. I am the essence of everything that is good and kind and moral. And for Job, or for that matter, me, trying to figure out God's reasons why for doing certain things is sort of like Sort of like um, walking into a room halfway through somebody else's argument. Have you ever done that? And you're asked for an opinion? <laughs> it's incredible. It's ridiculous. There's no way you can give a fair judgment. You don't have all the facts, do you? You don't know all the details, all the background. And I guess in the same way, lying on that hospital bed right there with Job, I figured that I didn't have all the background and I didn't have all the details. How unsearchable are thy judgments, and I ways past finding out, O oh God. And I realized that I wouldn't have all the details until I was on the other side of eternity. The book of Job pointed me to the cross of Christ. Oddly enough, it was because at the cross I saw God's supreme demonstration for why he can and should and must be trusted.
that we don't have a God who's an arm's length of distance from our pain or our suffering. I mean, we don't, you know, honor some meditating mystic of some guru of a God who sits on some mountaintop somewhere twiddling his thumbs, uncaring or unthinking about those of us who hurt the painful issues in our society and the people behind those issues. We have a God who made himself of no reputation and put on the incredible dust of human indignity, birth, flesh. <laughs> and he loved us so much that even though he was perfect, he secured for us a rich salvation that we just don't deserve. And he did this because he loved us. And that is what finally got through to me, God's love. I looked at Jesus and I considered that who for the joy that was set before him, he endured his cross. Should I do much less? And I looked at what Paul said about Jesus. Isn't that funny? He never said, I know why all these things are happening to me. But Paul said, I know in whom I have believed. As Paul understood the same thing that Job realized, that we can't twist God's arm for all the reasons why. God wants us to trust him because he did enough explaining at Calvary. And that is enough of a reason. Looking at Jesus, studying God's word, I slowly began to see that God wanted me to be holy as he is holy. Now, that meant, of course, being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Galatians 5.22, you know, the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience. But that's kind of ambiguous and, and vague a bit, isn't it? How do you put all that theory, all that, all those wonderful sounding attributes into practice? Well, being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ means rubber meet the road stuff, like, like laying aside falsehood and, and, and speaking the truth in love. Never letting the sun set on your anger. Letting no unwholesome word come out of your mouth. Not engaging in silly or foolish or coarse talk. Um, avoiding all appearances of evil. How about blessing? those who curse you. Looking out for others' interests before your own. Um, how about being kind to one another, forgiving? Is anything touching your heart? Being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ means living out holiness. Christianity is just not some high-sounding ritual that we perform in the pew. No, it's, it's abiding by biblical standards of personal holiness and in turn seeking to live out that holiness in the society in which we live. That's why Jesus called us salt and light. Consider, if you will, also in talking about living out God's standard of holiness in our society, consider, if you would, Matthew 25, what it means to be salt and light. You, you know that portion of scripture. That's where the disciples have come up against Jesus and they, they want to know by what sort of criteria God will separate the righteous from the unrighteous. Well, Jesus reminds them of the wonderful things that are yet to come. But then he describes the sort of standard that is expected of them in the meantime until he comes back. And he says if you give drink to the thirsty or if you invite the stranger in or if you clothe the naked, or if you feed the hungry, if you do these things, even to the least of my brethren, Jesus says, you have done these things unto me. And if you haven't, even if we are so bold to call ourselves children of God, Christians, 
part of the family, ambassadors of Christ, if we lack in making a dent in our society by living out our holiness, where will we fall in the category of the righteous or the unrighteous? Jesus says, by our fruits, we will be made known. But that is love. That is justice, but that is also love because God loves us so much that he holds us accountable. I mean, God loves us so much that he expects that we live out those biblical standards of holiness each and every day. And in so doing, he ascribes meaning to what we do each and every day. He ensures us that what we say, how we respond, matters for eternity. You know, I have a motto for living that sort of way. You know, taking your personal holiness and letting it affect the society around you. I have a motto for that. It's in Romans chapter 12, verse 9. And it says there that love must be sincere. We have to hate what is evil, but cling to what is good. Take that apart for a minute. If we love sincerely, we are going to hate what is wrong. I mean, we truly will point a finger of rebuke at the works of darkness. We will expose evil. We'll fight against wrongs. But we mustn't stop simply there. Because trying to change our society in that way is nothing more than heroism. And heroism is just an extraordinary feat of the flesh. Oh, issues in our society are occasionally changed that way. But God would have us to do much more than simply hate what is wrong in our society. He would want our love to be sincere so that we can cling to what is good. That means not changing things heroically by extraordinary feats of the flesh, but through holiness, which is an ordinary work of the Spirit. Because living Christ out that way in our society means that not simply the issues will be changed, not simply the wrongs will be righted, but the people, the people behind the issues, their lives will be touched for Jesus Christ. Heroism brings one personal glory. There are many people in our society who, to, who attempt to change our culture that way. But holiness, which brings about a lasting change in our society, doesn't bring one personal glory, but brings glory to God. Let me share with you in my own experience how I want to live out Jesus in my daily life. Most of you may have heard of, of Elizabeth Bouvier. She was the young woman's cerebral palsy who a short time ago was making an issue of the fact that she wanted to secure a court order so that the staff of Riverside County General Hospital would allow her to die, to starve herself to death. You must understand that what her battle represented was evil to destroy, to take away life. Her battle fostered pity in the public toward many other people who were severely disabled. Her battle caused many people in our society to scratch their heads, wondering just what is the value to human life, thinking perhaps that it simply mattered on one's function. You've also got to understand that the disabled community empathized with Elizabeth Bouvier's struggle. We really did. 
Most people who are severely handicapped understand the sorts of problems she faced. Lack of attendant care, difficulty in securing medical help, attitudinal barriers in our society, difficulty in finding housing, employment, family relationships splintered and broken apart. Most people with disabilities could empathize with her struggles. But you've got to also understand that what Elizabeth represented, we in the disabled community, many of us fought feverishly. And you saw it on television, didn't you, with the placards and the pickets and the slogans and the campaigning. I tried to get a hold of Elizabeth personally many times. I inwardly was angered at her action, thinking of what it would do to unravel all the advancements that have been made in the disabled community in the years since, thinking about the pity that would be fostered in the public toward people like her, people like me. I was angry at her action. I tried to get a hold of her, but not to much success. Finally, I read in the paper that she was down in a little clinic in Tijuana, a laetral clinic, seeking some sort of help from those people in accommodating her death wish. Well, on a whim, I just happened to call down to that clinic in Tijuana, didn't know the people, had a difficult time finding the phone number, but I got through. It just so happened that the receptionist was a Christian. And it also just so happened that the director of that little Laetrile clinic in Tijuana was also a Christian. Yes, Elizabeth was there. Yes, they had been talking with her. Yes, they told me she expressed an interest in seeing me. Well, I got in my van and took that long three and a half hour drive down to the border and the whole time I'm thinking, I'm thinking about how we really go about changing issues in our society. I'm thinking and praying about how we bring about reform, how we correct the wrongs, how we can point a finger of rebuke at the evil works of darkness. How do we bring light into our society? I toyed with the idea of giving her a grocery list of things that she was doing wrong. Don't you realize, I heard myself saying to her, don't you realize what this choice means? Don't you realize that life is not dependent on one's functioning ability, but life is sacred simply because we're created in the image of God? I mean, I had a whole, as I said, grocery list of attacks and arguments I was about to present to her. <laughs> and, then, um, and then I pulled up in front of the clinic. It was a dusty, dirty little place. And um, there were a couple of people with their beer bottles drinking on the curbside right by the entrance a few dogs were sniffing around a rooster was on the tin roof and I wheeled in there and suddenly I didn't feel so heroic you know what I mean I didn't I didn't feel extraordinary I didn't feel like I was about to accomplish a feat in the flesh <laughs> I I suddenly sense God's holiness and I simply prayed that he would do an ordinary work of his spirit that yes my love would be sincere not by so much hating what is evil in my society 
as represented in this one woman's choice. But my love must be sincere in that I should cling to what is good. And so I wheeled into her room and we spent about 45 minutes talking about attendant care problems. We talked about leaky leg bags. We talked about pity and ignorance. We talked about fear. We talked about her cerebral palsy and how embarrassed she gets when she drools and she doesn't have a Kleenex or a towel to wipe her chin. We talked about her hurt because her husband left her. We also shared and discussed her disappointment when she miscarried. We talked about the difficulty in finding employment, housing, opportunities. We talked about accessibility. We talked about all these sorts of lowest common denominators that she and I shared. And um, in the background was a radio, and it was, uh, it was on her favorite rock station, and Police was singing that song, um, what is it? Uh, I'll be watching you, every move you make, every vow you break, every step you take, I'll be watching you. And she seemed so otherworldly, so I picked up on the words that police was singing on, and I said, you know, you've really got a God who's watching you. Every step you take, every promise you're making, every vow you're breaking, everything. And we ended up praying. She didn't accept Christ at that meeting, but then again, I left that up to the Holy Spirit. I, I wasn't marching in there hoping to change the world by changing her life. <laughs> I just wanted to demonstrate something of holiness to her and let Jesus do his ordinary work of the Spirit. But I noticed in the papers the next week that she chose life, that that Easter Sunday morning she took communion. I don't know what that meant either, but then again, I rest in the fact that she was in a clinic where she was surrounded by many Christians, many believers. I rested in the fact that one young woman chose life. That, in a very real sense, is God's power showing up best in weakness. We are the salt and the light of the world, and curiously enough, that verse comes right after the fact that we are to bless those who curse us. There are Elizabeth Bouviers in our society. Well, they're not all disabled, but they are people who have such an antithetical way of looking at life from the way we look at life, unbiblical, often anti-biblical. How do we go about changing our society? Oh, we can pound our fist on the pulpit and hate what is wrong, and expose the evil works of darkness and point the finger of rebuke at all the things that need to be corrected. But I would believe that God would want us to go one giant step further. For our love must be sincere. We hate what is evil, yes, but we cling to what is good. For we're not simply concerned about changing issues in our society. If indeed we want to demonstrate Christ and his holiness in this world, we want to change the people behind the issues. Let's close in a word of prayer this, this part. And while our heads are bowed, maybe it would be a good idea just to confess to God some area of 
of our life in this society where we we know we're guilty of hating what is evil but not clinging to what is good. Perhaps we've tried to change things around us heroically, extraordinary feats of the flesh. Let's present to God our weakness now and allow him to live out his holiness through us, doing a wonderfully miraculous ordinary work of the Spirit to change our world and to change the people in it. God, you brought us to a place like this to prepare us. We take courses and we study hard and we listen to our professors. We read, we pray with conviction. And all this is that we might be salt and we might be light. Father, give us the power to bless those who curse us, to lay aside falsehood and speak the truth in love, to avoid the appearances of evil, but also Help us to cling to what is good by looking out for others' interests before our own, by being kind to others and forgiving, by never letting the sun set on our anger. Help us to demonstrate your holiness, and in so doing, you will draw all men to yourself. We pray these things for the advancement of Christ's kingdom on this earth. We've got some time left, and if any of you guys would like to saw up some theological lumber <laughs> or ask questions or whatever, I'll sure be happy to, to spend the rest of the time sharing that way with you. Any questions you'd like to ask? How about the second question? That's always easier than the first question. <laughs> Any questions? Yeah. Would I sing? <laughs> you know, I... <laughs> oh, dear. I didn't bring any tapes or anything with me. But, um, yes, I'd like to sing. I don't pretend to be a, you know, a singer. I did sing a duet with Sandy Patty a couple weeks ago. Oh, I was so, I was so nervous. <laughs> you want to sing a... Duet with moi, I said. I was so me. <laughs> um, let me share with you a song that I wrote uh, a couple of years ago when I was really going through a time of depression. I think that depression, incidentally, is just indigenous to what it means to be human. I mean, we all get the Monday morning blues, right? We all have chemicals and amino acids and enzymes that do their weird little things in our bodies, and I struggle with that too. I think depression is, you know, part of living. Um, I think it becomes a sin, though, when it alters our view of God. We've got to be careful that depression turned inward doesn't become bitterness or anger. But be that as it may, lying on that hospital bed for, for three months, healing up pressure sores was a drag, to say the least. It was so difficult to lift the sword of the spirit or my shield of faith and... And every once in a while, one of the devil's fiery darts of real depression would get through. But I knew that God gives us new songs and joy will come in the morning, even though weeping does endure for the night. And one night, during one of those 
C.S. Lewis mad midnight moments where everything seems as though it's going to crash down on you and your life is in ruin and you know you're going to wake up tomorrow and somebody's just going to step on you as though you were a worm. You ever felt that way? I decided instead to just sing. And the, the words of the song just came to me rather easily. And um, you can identify with this even though you're not I have a piece of china, a pretty porcelain vase. It holds such lovely flowers, it captures everybody's gaze. But fragile things do slip and fall, as everybody knows. And when that vase came crashing down, those tears began to flow. But don't we all cry when pretty things get broken? Don't we all sigh at such an awful loss? But Jesus will dry your tears as he has spoken Cause he was the one broken on the cross Now my life was just like China A lovely thing to me It was full of porcelain promises Of all that I might be but fragile things do slip and fall, as everybody knows. And when my life came crashing down, those tears began to flow. But don't we all cry when pretty things get broken? Don't we all sigh at such an awful loss? But Jesus will dry your tears as he has spoken, because he was the one broken on the cross. Now Jesus is no porcelain prince. His promises won't break, I'm so glad. His holy word holds fast and sure. His love no one can shake. So if your life is shattered by sorrow, pain, or sin, His healing love will reach right down and make you whole again. Cause don't we all cry when pretty things get broken? Don't we all sigh at such an awful loss? But Jesus will dry your tears as he has spoken Cause he was the one broken on the cross now Don't we all cry when pretty things get broken Don't we all sigh at such an awful loss But Jesus will dry your tears as he has spoken Cause he was the one broken on the cross <laughs> Eat your heart out, Sandy Patty. No, I'm only, I'm only teasing. I'm only teasing. I'm only teasing. <laughs> oh, it was really funny when we did this duet together, which wasn't on that song. It was some other song. It was this crowd of 10,000. And I, I, I don't get so nervous talking in front of people, but I sure get nervous singing in front of people because I, I don't even have chest muscles. And... Um, <laughs> Well, Sandy said to me, don't worry, Johnny, I can't paint either. I said, yeah, I heard you don't stay in the lines when you color. <laughs> but anyway, that was fun. Any other questions you have? Yes. I've written two books, Johnny and A Step Further, and I'm, I'm just about finished my third book right now. In fact, I'm not going to have lunch with Bob Provost because I've got to get home to my computer <laughs> and keep working on my manuscript got a deadline but I'm real excited about this third book it uh, it'll describe some of the ups and downs I encountered when I, I did that movie where I recreated my my own you know life for the camera I have a hard time saying starring 
I really do. I have to always say, portraying my own part. Sounds so sterile and clean. <laughs> anyway, uh, I'll be sharing about my, the part in the movie and then my move to start the Ministry of Johnny and Friends and then my marriage also. About my marriage. My second book, A Step Further, was, the reason I wrote that is because people were asking me an awful lot of questions about suffering. Why does God allow this and why does God allow that? Who am I to say? I've never been to Master's College or, <laughs> or seminary. <laughs> but I, from my own personal Bible study and from sitting under the instruction of not only people like you know, John MacArthur, but J.I. Packer especially, and others, um, really influenced my thinking. And so a step further was my attempt to, in part, at least answer some of those questions. Any other questions? Yes. My family. Can I tell you about my family? I'm not pregnant, if that's what you'd like to know. <laughs> my husband and I are still trying. We've been married for a little over three years, and um, it's been wonderful. I wish he were here today, but he teaches uh, high school in Burbank, phys ed and, and uh, social studies, so he, he can't just take off. But he wished he could be here. He is a special guy. I, may I talk about him just for a quick minute? We met at church, at Grace Church, as a matter of fact. I'll, some of you have probably heard this story before, but I'll, I'll just capsulize it in a nutshell real fast. He, I was, uh, we had a guest speaker at church one day, and I was really bored with the sermon. And Come on, it happens to all of us, right? No, it wasn't John MacArthur. He was not there. Whenever I say that, Ken always wants to correct me to make sure people know it wasn't John MacArthur. I'm sure John would be very happy to admit that every once in a while, occasionally, he can be slightly tiring. <laughs> just, just once in a while, once in a while, once in a while. But anyway, it was a guest speaker, and I, was, I found my mind wandering. And you know, when you're sitting in church on a Sunday morning, you don't want to be thinking about what you're going to have for lunch that afternoon or, or what you're going to be doing that evening or work the next morning. So I decided to honor God just by praying. And I don't know, my eyes fell on the back of this person's head who was sitting about five pews in front of me, and I didn't see his face. I just started praying for him the whole time of the sermon, about 35, 35 40 minutes just praying all sorts of things, that if he knew Jesus, that his love of God's word would deepen, that if he was dating anybody, their relationship would be morally pure, free of any, any hint of sexual immorality. Or if he was married, Lord, that if you know he's having conflicts with his wife, solve them and help him be sensitive to his wife and help him to you know pitch in around the house by mincing onions occasionally or dicing celery or changing the beds or emptying garbage or just all kinds of things, praying practical stuff. And I was so overjoyed at the end of the service that I'd done something that, that really honored God in some way. And um, maybe about a couple months later, we were mutually introduced. And honestly, the first thing I said to him was, let, let me see the back of your head. <laughs> and it was him. It really was. And uh, we um, that struck up an interesting conversation. <laughs> Our first date was really interesting. He uh, knew he was going to have to lift me in and out of the car to, you know, go on our first date unless we had a chaperone with us. So I learned later he started pressing pounds at, at, at the gym at school. I'm going to pick up my first date. Is what he <laughs> but get this, he was pressing 175 pounds. I was furious. I said, oh, your student's going to think I'm just, you know, I'm not 175 pounds. 
but um, he lifted me effortlessly. And uh, our first date was really fun. He had to do all the not-so-usual things like put the napkin on my lap and cut up my food and put my special spoon in my arm splint so I could feed myself. And I was so nervous I kept drinking a lot of water, which was dangerous because, you see, I empty into a leg bag on the side of my leg. And, you know, I looked down underneath the table and it was getting, you know, full. Water on the knee, as I call it. And, uh, <laughs> and so I said, Ken, I'm sorry, you're going to have to take me to the, to the restroom. So we went to the restroom area, which was fine until we always kind of stood there. And he said, well, I'm not going to the ladies' room. I said, well, I'm not going to the men's room. <sighs> So we honestly had to go outside and find a tree. Can you imagine? It was so embarrassing. But you really have to have a sense of humor when you date somebody with a disability. And uh, I think that was a real, real plus for our friendship. Because right away from the very beginning, you know, all the masks, all the facade, all the veneer, all the carefully constructed little things, we make sure we put out our you know, our best foot forward when we're on our getting to know somebody. All that went down the drain. So he saw the real honest me from the very onset. And I think that deepened our relationship. I mean, all that honesty, all that, you know, upfrontness really, really made it special. And when he asked me to marry him about a year and a half later, we were so excited. But we had a lot of questions. You know, just try and think of what some of the questions might be. I'm not just talking about how I'm going to push vacuum cleaners either. But we thought to ourselves, no, you know, we had some people say, look, you're severely disabled. Come on, why don't you just go away for a weekend and just see if you can handle the problems that go along with the handicap. And we thought, no. You know, why should we as Christians let this disability give us a reason to sin? I mean, sometimes we do that, don't we? And you don't have to be paralyzed to do that. If you suffer, you ever felt like you deserved five good hours of bitterness this week because you've really, you've really been through it all? You ever felt that way? Or you just feel like you deserve time off from obeying God because you really had to put up a lot this week? Well, sometimes when you go through a lot of suffering, even a disability like that, you tend to think that you're the exception, but that's not so. So we entered our marriage with a baggage full of questions about how it was going to work. And um, <laughs> we like to call our honeymoon Handicap Awareness Week. <laughs> but in the three and a half years that we've been married since, it's been really wonderful. He is such a special guy. He's, so, he's got such the softest, most sensitive, sweetest spirit. It's just wonderful. And we've seen that my wheelchair just draws us closer together. Because, again, you know, God's power shows up best in weakness. When we can't quarrel, you know the difference between quarreling and arguing? You know, quarreling is where you pull out your emotional machine gun, you start firing away at one another, and you never do this, or you always do that, and the spew of hot lava of words comes spouting out of your mouth. You ever felt, have you ever quarreled with somebody and felt like you're reading a bad script? And as fast as you say those awful things, you just wish you could stuff the words back into your mouth? Well, that's... That's not handling anger in the right way. God says we can be angry. There's no problem being angry. It's just what we do with it. And it's unbiblical to quarrel. It is biblical, however, to argue. Really. 
And Ken and I have learned to argue, you know, where he gets to share his 15 minutes point of view, and I've got to be quiet. And then he has to shut up and listen to my 15 minutes point of view. And back and forth it goes until the sun finally sets in our anger about five in the morning. <laughs> but um, we've learned that that's the way to resolve conflicts, just openly, willingly listening with hearts and ears that want to look out for somebody else's interests before your own. But you know, if I were my feet, it wouldn't be that way. I'm the sort of person who would slam out the door, who would throw things, who would punch him. <laughs> or I'm the sort of person who would lift the frying pan so you just try it, Buster. I mean, I just know I'm that sort of person. But having the disability, I can't. I mean, he's the one that pushes my wheelchair to the bedroom, and he's the one who, you know, takes off my blouse and hangs it up and helps me to bed and flosses my teeth. And You can't stay mad at people who floss your teeth. <laughs> it's absolutely impossible. So. Any other questions? I wish he were here. It would be fun for him to talk here sometime. He's a special guy. Any other questions? Yes. Son, no, it'll be called Son of Johnny. <laughs> no, Johnny's Revenge. You like that? No, no, no. There'll be no other movies. No, I, I write about that in my book. Um, are any of you here majoring in communications? Any, any communication majors here? No. The film industry is crazy, and it it it, 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 it was a real struggle to to do that film emotionally and spiritually very very difficult and I I think it's a wonderful media for some but um, I'm not I don't know I, I, I don't think I'd want to do another movie again I'll leave that to the communication majors any other questions yes well we visited um, several Eastern European countries, Czechoslovakia and Romania, Poland, and visited about five rehabilitation centers in those countries and talked to many people with disabilities and um, rehabilitation officials. It was very sad, though, because uh, we never really saw people who were severely disabled. We saw paraplegics. We saw people who could be mainstreamed back into the, you know, the workforce of the communist ethic but we never saw people who could not be, through rehabilitation, re-entered into the mainstream of life. It almost seemed to us as though if you were either mentally retarded or cerebral palsied or quadriplegic, that you were then relegated to some back bedroom because you could not contribute to society. You could not work. You could not produce. And even the rehabilitation officials that we talked with seemed to underscore that sad truth. They shook their heads and said, our government does not and will not provide for these people. And they, they were pretty sad about that, too. Um, we came out of Eastern Bloc countries just thanking God in humility for living in the West. I mean, if I were living in a communist country, I really don't think I'd, I'd make it. Got a couple more minutes left. Any other questions? Yes. I was saved through Young Life, and I immediately began attending Bishop Cummings' Reformed Episcopal Church. I'm Reformed Episcopalian, and um, I still hold my membership at that church along with the Church of Grace. Um, and I also attended 
um, the Reformed Episcopalian Church after my accident. And uh, really, it was then that through the, um, the RE Church that I gained a great love for Reformed theology. And I ate up books by Lorraine Bettner and um, J.I. Packer and... You know, the Reformed Doctrine of Predestination for me was just wonderful reading because it was a tremendous comfort to know that God was in control and, and he was not held hostage by my handicap any more than I was. And it was through such good authors as, as those people and others that I, I learned that, um, that God's in control for good reasons. He doesn't do things capriciously. You know, it's not as though his back was turned when I took a dive off that raft. And uh, then he turned around and thought, uh-oh, what am I going to do next? And, e and even when we say God permits things, we, we must be careful not to get the idea that, you know, Satan's twisting his arm, saying, oh, let me touch her flesh this once. And then God very hesitantly grants permission. Well, okay, you can do this, but don't hurt her too much. And just this one time. And you know, we, we get the idea that God hesitantly grants Satan permission to, to touch us. But I think that's the wrong concept when we use the word permits. I like the words the Bible uses, ordain, um, predestine, elect, call, plan, prepare. I mean, I think those are wonderful words that we don't need to apologize for. We can't throw them around loosely, though, can we? Because they are mysteries. I mean, even, even uh, John MacArthur has said that, that um, suffering is a mystery, but not a mystery without direction. I love that part. God gives us plenty of direction in his word. Well, this has been a wonderful time. Sorry, guys, it's through. Quarter after class is next. Thank you very, very much. God bless you, and I hope we can come back. Mm -hmm.